1: it adds up quickly. So that's my biggest advice that I could share
0: is that don't get
1: demoralized or disheartened, just do something positive in one direction every day.
0: Welcome to the Best Ever Show, the world's longest running daily commercial real estate podcast. Our hosts interview commercial real estate experts every day to get you the best advice ever with none of the fluffy stuff.
2: Hello, best ever listeners. Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Ash Patel and I'm with today's guest, Rafael Goyazo. Rafael is joining us from Louisville, Kentucky. He is a commercial real estate specialist for Grisanti Group, which helps business owners buy, sell, and lease commercial real estate. Rafael is the podcast host. For the Commercial Real Estate Academy, and has authored six books. Raphael, thank you for joining us, and how are you today?
1: Great, it's an honor to be here. I've listened to the best ever podcast for quite some time, and I've listened to you since you've been operating in the host capacity. So it's been amazing. I'm blessed to be here.
2: Thank you, and it's our pleasure to have you, Raphael. Before we get started, can you give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and what you're focused on now?
1: Yeah, I'll go back to the beginning just to share some context. I actually was born in Northeast Italy. My dad is a physician for the military. So we traveled a ton when I was young. I lived in Italy for five years, moved to Germany for several years, and then ultimately to Belgium at Supreme Headquarters out at Paris Europe. I went to high school in Arizona and then went to college at Arizona State University where I studied industrial engineering and economics. And then I got into software development and consulting for a company that implemented software systems for government agencies. And I got the privilege of working in a variety of capacities in Washington, D.C. I lived in San Juan, Puerto Rico on a big tax software project for the island. And then ultimately, I moved to Louisville, Kentucky back in Late 2017, after Hurricane Maria hit, I got interested in real estate, more so on the investing side through bigger pockets and listening to the podcast. And back in 2018, 2019, I decided I wanted to consider my options outside of what I was doing in the tech space. So I bought a small multifamily property, a fourplex, house hacked that, and then ultimately transitioned away from what I was doing before and got into the commercial brokerage space back in mid to late 2019. And I've been operating in that capacity ever since. As you get started in commercial brokerage, you kind of do a little bit of everything. But as I've started to grow my practice, I've started specializing a lot more in the retail side and investment properties like shopping centers, and I've done some industrial leasing as well. But I'd say what I've really done a lot of recently is retail, so that's kind of been my focal area.
2: Raphael, when most people start educating themselves and listening to the podcast and getting on Bigger Pockets, they dream of becoming an active syndicator and taking down their own deals. What drew you to becoming a broker?
1: That's a great question. So I didn't know much about real estate to begin with. My family isn't necessarily the most entrepreneurial, although my mom did become a residential agent back in 2010 and, and slowly grew her practice. She wanted me to get her my license back when I was in college, but you know, you don't listen to your parents at that age. So I didn't really listen. And I thought I was going to do engineering for the rest of my life, but I realized it wasn't necessarily what I want to do. The reason why I decided to go in the brokerage route is because you get to learn by transacting. So I've done many, many deals up at this point. I've interacted with all key stakeholders within a transaction. And as I begin to grow my practice and generate more income, that gives me now an opportunity to start doing similar things to what you guys are describing, which is syndication, but potentially getting a group of people together to invest in, and even and if it's not a broad syndication where you're bringing a bunch of people, it could just be a couple of friends getting together and you know how to identify these opportunities in the marketplace and then you just go after it. So um, that,
2: that's, that's great. So you yeah, you get go paid ahead. to learn.
1: Yeah, exactly. You don't get paid much in the first couple of years, let me tell you. But you do learn a lot. And now that I've started to grow my practice, yeah, I'm starting to get paid pretty well with all the different commissions that are coming in everything else. So I don't say it's an easy profession by any stretch of the imagination. Anytime you go to 100% sales commission role, in particular, without having any experience, it can be rough, but it strengthens you as a professional. So I feel like I've definitely evolved ever since I started in the industry.
2: Did you start out with residential brokering or did you go straight to commercial? Straight commercial.
1: And luckily, I've been blessed that my broker has been very supportive from the beginning. A lot of brokerages, when you first start out, you're 100% commission and you have no safety net. At least my first year, I had a draw. What a draw is, it allows you to draw on future commissions. You obviously have to pay those commissions back with commissions that you generate, but at least it gives you a baseline to be able to survive off of as you start getting going in your career. And when I started, it was right before COVID and when COVID hit, everything shut down. So it definitely didn't help my business too much, but at least enabled me to get my footing. And I can't understate how much the house hack helped as I was getting started because it helped eliminate my biggest expense, which at the time was my rent. So I think that those two in combination was what enabled me to continue along with the brokerage profession.
2: So you're all about laying the foundation first.
1: Yeah, I think you need to be strategic about it. I think there's a lot of people out there that showcase, oh, yeah, you can make a ton of money in something, but you got to realize that it's all about building that foundation. And if you don't have a safety net, you got to be very strategic about how you take on these risks. It's important to take risks in life. You don't really advance without taking risks, but I'm also of the mindset. I mean, again, the engineering brain turning on, it's like, what are your fallback plans if something doesn't work out? And so mitigating the big items at least puts you in a position to succeed long term. And so again, I can't understate the blessings that I've had in my life as well.
2: Do you question why more residential realtors don't go into commercial?
1: Yeah, I talked to a lot of residential agents that talk about it. Well, I'll eventually get to commercial and I was like, well, it's a completely different environment. So really, it's not like one of those things, at least in my opinion, I feel like you don't really learn to be an effective commercial transactor without being in an environment where all they do is that. So if you're doing one-off commercial transactions, you may learn here and there, but you're not really going to be operating at the level that you maybe aspire to. So I'm of the mindset that if you want to get into commercial, I talk about just going all in. It may be tough the first year or two, but if you pair up with a broker that has your vested interest in mind and they can really mentor you and grow you, in my opinion, if that's what you want to do, you should do it. You shouldn't just work in the residential space if that's not what you want to do for five years and then graduate to commercial. That's not really, in my opinion, how it should be.
2: Yeah, I've had that conversation so many times and the benefits of being a residential broker is obviously higher commissions. You deal with people like us who are professionals. Financing is not a problem. Emotions are not a problem. We're not first-time home buyers. We're not going to change our mind because we found a better house. There's just so many benefits. So for any residential brokers listening, please consider commercial. You mentioned in your show notes, I have that you help businesses Buy, sell, and lease commercial real estate. Do you cater towards business owners?
1: Yes, I work with a lot of different business owners. And in my past, as I said, I took on a bunch of business. You get started, you kind of do what you can, the flywheel spinning. So I've worked with businesses in a variety of different capacities. As far as what I've done a lot more recently is I've worked with a lot of franchises, quick service restaurant franchises, even service-based franchises that are looking to expand footprints within our metro area and even surrounding areas so over the last, let's say a year or so, that's been where I've done a lot of work and I continue to build relationships with people in the space. So that's, I would say, where I've really gotten a lot of traction on the business owner side, but then on the investment front, a lot of it has to do with just interacting with a lot of people who own operating businesses. So I have a lot of connections in town where people own maybe like a liquor store or convenience stores or really any type of operating business. And now they want to buy a shopping center or a strip center, or maybe they want to put their business in one of the units and then operate like a house hack for commercial real estate where they buy a 10,000 square foot center and then they put their liquor store in 3,000 square feet of it. That sort of thing.
2: A question that's often asked is how do you get a national tenant? And there's no secret formula, is there?
1: No. And even to this day, I think a lot of it is all just relationships. So I'm involved in the CCIM Institute. I just recently got my CCIM designation. I'm actually flying out to Las Vegas for the ICSC conference here shortly. So building those national relationships is just getting your foot to the ground, pounding the pavement. And then ultimately, if you have opportunities that national tenants may be attracted to, making it easy for them to make a decision about whether or not it's a good fit, is a phenomenal way of doing it. Like I have an outlaw here in Shepherdsville, which is a town just south of Louisville. It's a Walmart outlaw. It's right in front of the Walmart. So that could be a very attractive parcel for a lot of different potential national tenants. And so I've strategically created a flyer and then individually reached out to the directors of real estate for these different firms to see if they're interested. And some don't respond, some do, they provide feedback. But if you make it really easy for them to say yay or nay, then they at least will respond to your email. But if you just blow it out to people saying, oh, yeah, yeah, this, this, that, you don't want to waste people's time. They're busy individuals.
2: Yeah. So important to realize it's all about relationships in your network. And that's the secret. Pounding the pavement, continuing to build on those relationships. Why do you love retail so much?
1: The cool thing about it is you get to meet with so many different types of businesses and you learn about the nuances of each. You understand what the margins are for these types of businesses. You understand why certain tenants can pay more rent than others. It's just a very nuanced type of business. And obviously, retail is a multifaceted type of industry. It's not just the big box retailers like the Macy's or JCPenney's that are going the way of the dinosaur. You have a lot of other retailers that are coming in to fill the gaps. And even some of these major online retailers like the Warby Parkers and some of these other national brands that – started out online, also now understand the value of having physical retail as part of their portfolio. And so physical retail is never going to go away. It's going to eventually reach an equilibrium with industrial product because of the online demand for products and such. But at the end of the day, there's always going to be demand for physical space. Now the footprints are shrinking. And that's what you're seeing with these quick service restaurants that don't necessarily need a ton of space, but they're willing to pay top dollar for the prime locations.
2: And retail vacancy nationwide is at the lowest it's been in over 20 years. Yeah. So what can you say to dispel the retail apocalypse myth that's floating around out there?
1: Again, I'm sorry, I am think- Sorry, right
2: now we're in May yeah. of 2023. So a lot of people fear retail investments because, again, they're worried about the recession, the Amazon effect, the retail apocalypse. So what's your answer to that?
1: I think when you look at some of these larger malls and power centers, those are definitely- probably going to struggle, depending on the type of tenants that you have on site. You obviously have necessity retail, like the grocery stores, the Home Depots, the Lowe's, those types of uses, they've performed extremely well, even through this recessionary period. So if you have a grocery anchored center with a Walmart or a Kroger or some of these other larger retail grocery tenants, those are going to be really strong plays long-term. Another thing that I think is extremely valuable are these small neighborhood retail centers. A lot of people Don't want to have to drive 30, 40 minutes to the major conglomerate area where there's a lot of retail. If there's a 10 or 15,000 square foot center that has a nail salon, that has a bakery, it has these other types of uses where they have strong mom and pop presence, maybe some regional presence, those perform extremely well through COVID. And in my opinion, are very, very good investments long-term because it's more about what's the proximity to residential rooftops. So again, you have to be strategic about it. Now, if you go out and buy a, a JCPenney, Anchored center, who knows? You're probably going to have some issues long-term, but if you're strategic about the type of retail you invest in, it can be extremely valuable. In particular, when you're talking about some of these long-term leases, if you like the single-tenant net lease properties, those are also very, very popular as well.
2: Yeah, it's so important to discern that. In the headlines, you'll see the bankruptcy of JCPenney, Bed Bath & Beyond, and all these other big-box retailers, but they don't ever tell you that Ross Stores is opening 150 stores. There's other stores that are expanding. And like you mentioned, those mom and pop retail centers in suburban neighborhoods, everybody needs the dog groomer, the pizza place, the dentist, internet resistant, recession resistant, great businesses. What's your plan? Are you going to actively take down deals at some point?
1: Yeah, that's what we're working on trying to do here. That's one of my goals for this year. Obviously, this is my third year in the business going on in my fourth year. So obviously continuing to establish and grow my practice and then also taking down small to mid-sized retail projects and looping in some of my friends to take down some of these projects. That's one of the goals for this year is to take down a building together. So stay tuned.
2: And we use this time to formulate and walk through that plan. Sure. It's adaptive reuse
1: is kind of what we're going for. The ground-up construction route is something that definitely is is interesting, but when you can actually utilize a structure and have the plumbing and electric and everything already in place, it does somewhat simplify the process. And when you talk about the ground-up construction process and you have land entitlements and everything else, it can get kind of cumbersome, especially for our first project. We want to take down a building. We're targeting certain areas of town that we think are path of progress So we're trying to find buildings there that even if they're not zoned properly, at least they have a pretty good chance of getting rezoned. And then from there, raising some of the funds together with some of my close friends that I went to university with. I have some colleagues that I used to work with, raising some capital and then taking down the project itself. So we don't have it identified yet. So outside of those specific criteria, I can't really share too much.
2: So Rafael, when you say adaptive reuse, would you not take a value-add retail center and just improve it? Or are you looking to convert maybe industrial into retail or vice versa?
1: No, it would probably start with existing retail or office and then converting it into some mixed use project. One of my investment partners has a lot of experience in the Airbnb space. So most likely what we would target is an existing structure that has the capacity to have some form of Airbnb on top. So maybe a standalone single story building that we can maybe add some floors to and then have the retail on the bottom and then have some Airbnbs on top. And the corridors that we're targeting in town are attractive for those travelers coming into Louisville. So that's what we're looking for.
2: Why is mixed use an awesome asset class?
1: Because it limits the downside risk of vacancy that occurs. So in retail and really a lot of the commercial and real estate. The great thing about commercial real estate is that once you get a tenant in there and they're a good tenant, they tend to stick around for a long time. But another thing that can be an issue with commercial real estate is the timelines between vacancies and the cost of refitting a space if a tenant ends up going dark. And so having the retail on the bottom or what other use, but in this case, let's say retail, gives you the stabilization of income to service the debt. And then on top, The Airbnb market has been very popular. Obviously, we're a city that we have the Derby. We have other events throughout the year that attract a lot of tourists. Bourbon country, we have bourbonism that's very popular as well. So we have a lot of people coming in for those particular uses and having the experience that my investment partner has and the space, he's got 10 Airbnbs himself. It is kind of like running a hotel, right? A mini hotel where you turn over the space and everything else. So it is an operating business, but the revenue generated from that use is a lot higher than let's say a long-term rental apartment. So it depends on what your cup of tea is. But in our case, we just have those pieces in place through the expertise that we've developed.
2: It's such an overlooked asset class as well. And like you mentioned, either the apartments pay for all your expenses or the retail pays for all your expenses. And the other side of it is basically your profit. Mm -hmm. Banks hate them because they really fall through the cracks. They're not commercial. They're not residential. They're typically a portfolio product, which means... The lender has to keep that property on their books. There's not a secondary market. Fannie and Freddie, I don't think typically buy mixed use debt.
1: Exactly. From my understanding, that is the case. Yeah. So they would keep it on their books. And that's where small to mid-sized regional banks come into play. Those are the ones you're typically going to have to leverage to get the deal done. But that's another thing is obviously I'm in the brokerage space. So I know 10, 15 lenders that I've worked with in a variety of different capacities. So being able to leverage those relationships is invaluable
2: where are you looking for these properties? Not physically, but where are you looking online or relationships?
1: It's a combination. So obviously we have a local platform called KCREA, which is our local multiple listing service. You have Crexie, some of the other national sites, but really it's more about just letting my other agent colleagues know what we're looking for. I just call up a few people that I know operate in the retail space a lot and say, I've got some friends that we're looking for something. If you have anything, I'd love to work with you. I've already built pretty good relationships with these individuals and who's to say they're not going to throw a bone my way. You
2: never know. Yeah. Do you scour the residential MLS for these types of properties?
1: I don't as much. And maybe that's something that I should look to do more of. I've built up a pretty good digital footprint here in Louisville. So there's a lot of residential agents that know that I do commercial. So I think more so maybe that's something that I could start doing is letting the ethos know with some of these videos, say, hey, by the way.
2: Yeah. So again, mixed use falls through the cracks. Mm-hmm. and From what I found, looking at the residential MLS for mixed-use buildings is the way to go because they're always misclassified. Sometimes they're under commercial, sometimes they're under residential, under multifamily. There's never a category that says mixed-use because it's so few and far between. So I would look continuously on the residential MLS Because we've actually purchased a number of mixed-use properties from residential realtors.
1: Oh, wow. That's awesome.
2: And often when residential realtors price them, they're mispriced because they don't understand cap rate NOI. they may not even understand how to price multifamily, let alone the commercial space. And if the commercial spaces are vacant, even better. Then the pricing's all over the board. So I would definitely utilize that. Craigslist, Facebook Marketplace, people looking for advertising apartments or commercial space for rent. If it's a smaller mixed use, they're typically not going to engage a commercial broker. Mm -hmm. So I would look at those. Do you plan on raising capital for this first deal?
1: Yeah, but it's close friends. I've got about five or six friends of mine that want to do a deal together. And so we're just putting our resources together and try to get it executed. So the price point's not going to be significant, probably all in under 1.2, 1.3 million or something like that.
2: Yeah, there should be a lot of options in that price range. Mm -hmm. Is this going to be a JV deal or will it be a syndication model?
1: No, it'll probably be JV. There's different structures. We really haven't explored the structures as of yet. There's four of the partners that I have that are not local, they're just friends of mine from college, and they obviously have their own separate careers that they're working on. And then my friend and I, we operate in similar spaces. We would be kind of the ones managing the project. So I think more so it's just sitting down and getting an understanding of what's equitable. For our contribution and really what it's going to take to get the deal done. Cause really once you get a proof of concept, then it becomes a lot easier to go through the process of raising capital in the future. Yeah.
2: So playing devil's advocate, you guys are doing all the work. Yeah. So you should be compensated for that. You could do that either with a management fee mm-hmm. or you can do a debt structure. Do you plan on putting capital in or raising all of it yourself?
1: I'd plan to put capital in. That's one thing that I really want to do is make sure that any deal that I get into, I at least put something in because that's kind of aligning our interests.
2: Have you thought about a waterfall structure? So if this deal hits it out of the park, mm-hmm. maybe you and your partner, since you're active in the business and active in managing the property, you get an additional share of income at the end.
1: Yeah, that would be something that I think would be very intriguing for sure.
2: Yeah, I love that approach with the JVs because this way the investors are adequately rewarded, but you and your partner are rewarded above and beyond because mm-hmm. you found a great deal, you made it work, put your blood, sweat, and tears in it, and you hit a home run. So Absolutely. there should be that reward and that incentive for you guys.
1: I appreciate that. And I think that that's probably something we will explore. I have to do a little bit more research on, on how exactly this properly structure that, but I'm sure you can provide context as well.
2: Simple JV agreement, email me, I'll send you one that I've used, but it's a very simple agreement. And this is all coming from mistakes that I've made over the years, which is what I'm sharing. For the future, you're going to end up raising more and more capital. Do you do a newsletter or how do you market yourself? Do all your friends and family know exactly what it is that you do?
1: Well, on the investment side, not so much. Yet, but yes, most people know at this point that I do commercial real estate. I've got a YouTube channel. I've got a podcast. I have a newsletter that I release every month and I do a a monthly virtual meetup called Commercial Real Estate 101 where we invite people to talk about a variety of different commercial real estate concepts. So capture emails through that. So I built up a pretty good list of individuals. I think three to 4,000 people that have subscribed and on the podcasting front, obviously we do that every week.
2: All right, I should be taking advice from you then. You've got all that covered. The only other thing I'll share is consider setting up a 506C structure okay, so that you can solicit accredited mm. investors. There's a lot of rules behind advertising deals on social media. It's considered a security. If you're not properly set up, then you potentially get in trouble. So setting up that 506C and even better advice, our first syndication, we paid the typical $15,000 fee. And then we went with one of those fund companies that set up an actual fund for you. The initial fund in the initial deal is $15,000, but then every subsequent deal is only $5,000. So you can either continue to pay $15,000 per syndication, or there's a number of competing fund companies that do all of that for you. Kind of a pain to set up initially, but once it's set up, it's much easier to do future deals. That's awesome.
1: Yeah, I'll have to get that information from you because I think that'd be- Yeah, happy to
2: share, man. Yeah. Awesome. I love what you're doing. Do you also broker industrial, office, medical? Yeah,
1: industrial and with medical, that's more so on the retail side. So the retailization of medical is obviously becoming very prevalent across the country. I actually have a listing right now with a former doctor's office that occupies 8,000 square feet in a strip center. So that's one thing that I'm actively working on. So I'm starting to learn a little bit about- the terminology that's involved with. In this case, it's a pediatric practice. I haven't really delved into the surgical practices. I know there's nuances. Urgent care is going to have different licensing and different requirements as well. So I haven't really delved into that. But on the industrial front, yeah, we've done a lot of industrial leasing. I've done some land deals that incorporate re- industrial as well. So I'd say the most of the stuff that I do is probably retail, industrial, and then probably multifamily on the investment side.
0: We'll get back to the show. with the first, some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. Are you looking to raise money from private investors to buy commercial real estate? SyndicationAttorneys.com is here to guide you every step of the way. At SyndicationAttorneys.com, they do more so you can do more. They create real estate syndication and fund offering documents, but they also educate you on the ins and outs of raising private money, ensure your offerings comply with securities laws, and help you structure fair deals with investors so everybody wins. With reasonable lump sum fees and over $2.75 billion in securities offerings created, syndicationattorneys.com has the expertise you need. But that's not all. Syndicationattorneys.com also offers weekly attorney-led masterminds, networking, and strategy sessions through their pre-syndication consulting agreements. To learn more, visit syndicationattorneys.com today to get started. This offer is not available to Florida residents.
2: So. For newer investors that want to get into industrial, would you recommend buying those ten fifteen thousand 15,000 square foot metal buildings, flex spaces?
1: Yeah, if you could find them, that's the hardest part. And there's a lot of different users too. Even in the ten to 25,000 square foot standalone, there's a lot of tenants out there looking for that. So I wouldn't necessarily pigeonhole myself and saying, okay, I want to find a 20,000 square foot flex product that has four or five bays or whatever. There's a lot of contractors and smaller operators that are looking for 1,500 to 4,000 or 5,000 square feet. So if you play in that sandbox, you're going to get a lot of interest. And then if you just want a standalone building between 10 and 25,000 square feet, you're going to get some interest. Now, it may sit a little longer than maybe some of those multi-bay flex product, but it's going to move from a leasing standpoint, especially if it's in an area that has easy access to roadways, depending on the tenant, maybe they need rail access or in our neck of the woods, we've got the Ohio river running through our city. So we have some tenants that require barge access. So it just depends on the product.
2: How important is ceiling height in those spaces?
1: It's important depending on the user. Obviously, logistics real estate has become much more popular and prevalent. Those are a lot of the users. And the reason why they want ceiling height is because they want to utilize cubic feet as opposed to just the floor space. So the more pallets you can stack, the more product you can get on site. Therefore, the cost to store that product is diminished significantly. So that's the reasoning for having higher ceiling heights. So, yes, ceiling heights as a default is going to be very beneficial. But in the case of a manufacturing tenant, maybe they don't necessarily need that high of ceiling height. So Again, it just depends on what you're looking for.
2: And then is there a certain square footage where you have to have semi-accessible loading docks?
1: Semi-accessible. Well, again, it's all dependent on the user. Some tenants don't even need semi-access. Some do. There's one guy that called in the office the other day that said, we only need 2,500 square feet, but we need two dock doors. And I'm like, where are you going to find the 2,500 square foot space with two dock doors? And they're willing to pay a lot of rent, but I'm just like, okay, well, you have to have like a custom product to be able to support that. So it's just going to be really tough for you to find space for lease. So again, I wish I could be more helpful on that front. Granted, when you have more space, you're going to need more semi-access because typically the tenants that are going to be utilizing that space are going to need it, be able to load and unload trucks on a regular basis.
2: I know during COVID, cold storage was very hot. Is that still the case?
1: Yeah. So I actually had a gentleman on the webinar that I run called George Smith. He's out of Miami, Florida. And all he does is cold storage. And he was telling me about the run-up of cold storage. And some of the numbers he was throwing around was just unbelievable. He's saying that he did a deal in Florida. I think it was like Eighty thousand square feet at twenty two dollars and fifty cents a square foot triple net, which for our markets like bonkers i don 't know how that would work, but you 're right there 's a lot of three p l companies out there that store product for restaurants and and other grocers that require having refrigeration and sometimes freezing on site and there 's a delineation between refrigeration and freezing which I was unaware of and obviously George enlightened us on the podcast regarding that because once you start getting a lot colder, then you run into issues about if the floor is not treated properly, you can get cracking of the concrete and the machinery involved with refrigeration, whether it's ammonia systems, it gets really convoluted. And obviously that's not my specialization. So I kind of defer to him on that front. But if you decide you want to invest in cold storage, do your research. It's not a cookie cutter model. There's a lot that goes into it.
2: Interesting. So you can't just throw a refrigeration unit on top of a building.
1: No, no, you can't. (laughs) And there's differences between the refrigeration systems too. It's not like a one size refrigeration system. There's ammonia systems and then there's freon systems. and
2: And Rafael, circling back to medical, what's good about medical tenants?
1: Their stability. So if you're able to get one in, think about it. If they're building out a space and it requires them to put in all types of equipment and whatever else, they're less inclined to move. And it's probably gonna be very difficult for them to move. And once you build up your tenant base or your base of clientele, they become familiar with you being in that location and everything else. So picking up and relocating to another location becomes a lot more cumbersome. So that's, I'd say, one. And then number two, obviously, they're medical. So they're very attractive to banks. Banks love those types of uses. Doctors tend to have the resources to be able to pay rent for the most part if they're managing their business accordingly. So there's a lot to like.
2: And I think unlike restaurants, they don't operate on thin margins, Mm -hmm. right? So rent is typically not a huge expense for these medical practices, just a line item. Mm -hmm.
1: And granted, there's been a lot of medical consolidation across the industry. So there's a lot of big hospitals that are starting to buy up private practices. So I'm interested to see how that evolves over time and how that affects private practice in these types of centers or whatever else going forward. But you're right, the margins are much greater if it's run efficiently as a business.
2: Yeah, so having those personal guarantees and long-term leases is very important, Mm -hmm. especially for a practice, maybe like orthopedics, if they're standalone, those are prime for getting bought up by hospitals and larger medical systems. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, how about restaurants? I know second-gen restaurants are super hot right now.
1: Yeah, you're telling me. I have a lot of... Tenants looking for that space. Yeah, it's unbelievable. And obviously, the main reason is because restaurant build-outs are so expensive, and they've only become more expensive. So if you have a space that's currently built out as a restaurant, and it's in a relatively decent location as a landlord, I don't think you're going to have an issue finding a tenant. Now, screening that tenant to ensure that they can actually comply with the terms of the lease, that's a different story. But as far as demand for those that products concerned, obviously that's very attractive. So that going forward, in my opinion, is going to continue to be attractive. And you're starting to see a lot more of these centers as online sales become more prevalent as a medium. You start seeing more of these retail centers having more restaurant tenants, bakery tenants, really uses that aren't going to necessarily be absorbed by the demand for online products. So I know Beth Azor is a lady that we had on our podcast a while back, and she had talked about how a lot of her centers initially... When she bought them years ago, they were maybe 10 or 15% restaurants. Now they're more in the 50 50% range. I don't know if that's just because of the geographic area she's in or if it's more so just because those uses are just more prevalent.
2: Yeah. And she is a legend for any of the best ever listeners that are interested in retail leasing. She's also known as the canvassing queen, an absolute legend. You mentioned screening the tenants. How do you screen, let's say, restaurant tenants?
1: Obviously, it depends on the area of town and everything else. But if it's well located center, Usually we'll require PLs for existing locations. We typically won't take a risk on a new startup unless they're very well capitalized. So we may ask for a personal financial statement, other sources of lease guarantees to confirm that even if, God forbid, the restaurant doesn't work out, that you're able to recoup whatever investments you have in the space. So that's primarily what we do. You ask for PLs, you ask for balance sheets, you ask for all the pertinent financial information for the individual and their business. And then from there, it's just, do you like the concept? Do you think it's going to complement? the existing tenant. Obviously, tenant mix is extremely important when it comes to retail. So if it's a nightclub, you may not want it there, even if it's very successful, just because it may affect your private practice next door. You have bottles in the parking lot <laughs> with pediatrics, it's probably not going to be a good good sign.
2: Yeah. In terms of vetting the tenants, is that something you do as a broker or is that really up to the landlord? Or both?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So obviously if the landlord's unrepresented, it's their responsibility to make sure that's the case. And there's a lot of resources out there that can kind of teach you about how to manage that process. But I do a lot of landlord rep as well. And part of my job as an agent is to advise my client on what's best for them as far as tenants are concerned. You could have a tenant who's willing to pay you more rent and whatever else, but if it's not a good fit, maybe they don't have the right financials. Again, it doesn't matter. So you really have to get granular and vetting these tenants and making sure that they do comply because you're taking a risk. When you lease space to any entity, you're taking a risk. So you want to make sure it's a calculated one.
2: That's impressive. All the commercial brokers I've ever dealt with, they leave that up to us. Mm -hmm. They never help advise or any of that stuff. So good for you for doing that.
1: I love it. I think it's great. And again, we'll sit down and interpret it together. And I've learned just as I've gone along as well, so I can provide maybe insights from previous transactions I've been a part of. So... I view it as whatever I can do to help you make the best decision possible. That's all I care about.
2: That's incredible. Raphael, what is your best real estate investing advice ever?
1: Best real estate investing advice. Well, I think it's, this is advice in general. Anything you take on is a process. I read this book called The Compound Effect by Darren Hardy. And the concept is small, positive, consistent action over time adds up to massive results. So I've used that exact same logic to grow my real estate practice. I've written six books. I'm finishing my seventh. I'm growing a podcast, I'm starting on the investment front, and this is all within a three to four-year timeframe. Now, if I had started yesterday or when I first started and looked at what I've done today and said, it would have been overwhelming. I would have thought that there was just no possible way that I could have ever accomplished that. But when you take small bites every day, it adds up quickly. So that's my biggest advice that I could share is that don't get demoralized or disheartened, just do something positive in one direction every day.
2: Raphael, are you ready for the best ever lightning round? Yes. All right. What's the best ever book you recently read? The best
1: ever book I've recently read, 48 Laws of Power.
2: And what is your big takeaway from that?
1: You have to be more strategic. You don't just assume that everyone needs to be trusted. You have to really be strategic about how you approach the process of interactions with people.
2: Rafael, what's the best ever way you like to give back?
1: I serve on several different boards. I'm the president of my local junior achievement, young professionals chapter. I serve on an associate's board for a large nonprofit in town. So and I used to be in a fraternity in college, so I've served in that capacity on the board there. So really any way I can get involved to help people, regardless of where they come from, I think that's the way I like to involve myself.
2: And Raphael, if you would tell us again about the podcast, the books that you've authored and how the best ever listeners can get a hold of you.
1: Yeah, first off, thank you so much, Ash, for the opportunity. It's really an honor to be here. But as far as the podcast, it's the Commercial Real Estate Academy. We started back in early 2021. We interview people in the commercial real estate space. We've had over 112 people who've been on the podcast. You can find that on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, whatever else. I've written six books. Four of them is called the Millennial Playbook Series, where I talk about personal professional development topics for young professional. And the next two books that I've just recently written, one's called Before You Sign That Lease, The Small Business Owner's Guide to Leasing Commercial Space. That gives you the comprehensive process of leasing commercial property. I wrote a book called Before You Buy That Building, The Small Business Owner's Guide to Buying Commercial Real Estate, which again, same process, but from the business owner's perspective. And then the last book that I just am about to finish is called Before You Sell That Building the Small Business Owner's Guide to Selling Commercial Real Estate. So it's gonna be the business owner's perspective of selling your property after you've been in business for many, many years. And it's gonna become a series. So I'm gonna write a book called Before You Invest That in That Building. And then ultimately I'll get into the process of, of writing a book called Before You Develop That Building when I do more development projects.
2: That is incredible. I gotta thank you for sharing all of your time and knowledge with us today. There's an amazing theme here in that you lay the groundwork and the foundation first. You spend the time, educate yourself, get the knowledge, and then you progress. So I love how you're going about progressing. Thank you again for your time today.
1: No, thank you, Ash. It really was an honor.
2: Best ever listeners. Thank you so much for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a five-star review. Share this podcast with someone you think can benefit from it. Also, follow, subscribe, and have a best-ever day.
0: Hi, Best-Ever listeners. Joe Fairless here again. And one last thing before you go, would you like to receive a short weekly email with proven tips from experienced investors, free tools and resources, and a roundup of the week's most relevant news and best-ever content? Well, if so, join the community of nearly 15,000 commercial real estate passive and active investors who receive the best-ever newsletter. Just go to bestevercre.com forward slash access, and you'll get the very next one. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And as always, thank you for listening and have a best ever day.